0: All right, welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and we have made it to the end of Ezra Nehemiah. I want to thank you so much for joining me on uh, this journey. We set out, uh, I set out hoping that this would be uh, both informative and stimulating, but also that it would be a way that I could um, help people Uh, work on their own Bible study skills, not by telling you what everything means and how to interpret everything, but just to, as we go through the story, make some observations. And by making those observations and maybe drawing some loose connections, hoping that uh, it would help you train your own eye and own ear uh, to see and to hear and make some of those connections as well. And then it's your job to uh, sit and think and be that Psalm 1 kind of person that works through those things and ponders those things and hides them in your heart and meditates on them day and night. And, uh, you know, I can't do that work for you or that task for you. Nobody can. And um, and so my, my hope was not to tell you exactly what this means or that but just make some observations and some general um, some general kind of broad stroke connections and then uh, kind of let you go from there uh, but hoping that as we did that it would help you uh, train your own eyes and ears as well and so hopefully uh, I've I've done at least a little bit of that and hopefully you've learned a little bit but I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me on this. And um, feel free, if you have not yet, to download the notes uh, in the, the, the description below. There's a link to those as well. And, uh, and then also, if you haven't checked out my Substack feed, you can do that with the link below as well. Um, I'm not exactly sure when I'll be coming back. Uh, my, by the time you're hearing this, uh, we've long now kind of been back in the States We've probably had our fourth baby by now, and uh, our hope was to be back here in the Middle East towards the end of May, is uh, if everything goes according to plan. And so that should leave a little bit of a break between uh, when this airs, finally airs, and when we actually get back. Uh, but I will be coming back with uh, the podcast, and I'll be going back to doing some more uh, interviews with people and um, I have a few fun ideas for the next round of episodes, and uh, I, I'm I'm working on. I, I can't promise this, but I'm working on uh, getting my Catholic priest friend uh, to come on with me for a series of episodes where we have some Catholic Protestant dialogue, and uh, hopefully that hopefully we can make that work. We'll see. Uh, I'm working on him. So, anyway, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me throughout this series. And uh, without further ado, let's jump one last time into Ezra Nehemiah. All right, here we are at the end. We are in the final major section here of Ezra Nehemiah. Uh, We've just come off of the temple being rebuilt, the Torah being read aloud, the walls being rebuilt. Then we had this incredible uh, resettling of the land and uh, connected, obviously, to Joshua. And then this incredible um, dedication service of the city that echoed uh, Solomon's dedication of the temple. There's all the echoes to Sinai. We looked at Psalm 48, and that section ends with, it was this joyful uh, moment of great rejoicing. Uh, I'm actually, actually, why don't I just do this? just read verse 43, which is the end of the last section. Uh, and they offered great sacrifices of that day, and they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. You're picking up the theme. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. And you remember when they dedicated the temple under Zerubbabel, when just the foundation was laid, uh, it said that joy and weeping were mixed, so that the people afar of off couldn't tell the difference. And now the weeping has been taken away, and it is only joy. And that is, I think, the author's final signal of this kind of the the the. The building and the Reformation and the the prophetic hope uh, that they've succeeded, that this is this has worked, this is God's moment, this is what the promise of the prophets and the law and the Psalms have spoken, or as to use the language of Psalm 48 that we looked at in the last episode, tell the next generation that this is God. I mean, I think that that was the the signal, so. We, we then transition verse 44 uh, through the rest of chapter 12 through chapter 13, kind of forms this final section, uh, and it is what I uh, did not come up with. I, I actually got this from uh, Tim Mackey, who you, you may know who runs the Bible Project. Uh, what he calls uh, the anticlimax, and uh, he was actually the first one I, I ever heard point this out about the book, because when I'd read the book before, I was just completely puzzled as well by the ending. And most of the time when I read the book, if I'm very honest, I never got to the ending. Uh, I got just to the part where Nehemiah is building the walls with swords and building tools, Uh, because that's where the sermon... If you've ever noticed sermon series that go through Ezra and Nehemiah, that's usually where they stop um, they stop there uh, in the middle of the book of Nehemiah and um, Nehemiah 4. And so, uh, but that's not where the story stops. The story keeps going. And this, uh, this, I've said this a few times now, but this ending we have to see rightly because it is, it makes the whole book make sense. It flips the meaning of the whole book really on its head and as as christians now going back and reading this story it plays an even more important role in how we connect it to jesus so we're going to try and do all of those things here in in this this episode so this you'll remember was uh So uh, unless we can summarize it all all of what I just said this way, unless we track and have tracked with that prophetic storyline in this book, from Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, uh, and unless we know how the, the story is supposed to end, which we've talked at length about, then we will miss the significance of how the story does end. Because how this story does end... Is not how it was supposed to end. And, and when we make that observation, then we can begin to pause and reflect and ask the questions that need to be that need to be asked. Um, this section has very clearly three parts to it, three distinct scenes. And each of them is an a, an anti-climax to the three movements of rebuilding and restoring. So if you remember, the very first major section of the book was Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7, and that dealt with first the temple, then the Torah, and then the walls. So those are the three things uh, that were Rebuilt or reformed, restored, we used a, a number of different words to, to, to talk about those. And so, chapter this final section, basically chapter 13, the very end of 12 and 13, also has three sections. And each of these three sections corresponds to one of the three places of rebuilding and reformation and restoring in, in, uh, earlier in the book. So we have temple, Torah, and the city, and here we're going to have three sections that ma- each matching one of those. So um, I'm, I'm on page 67 in the notes, 66 and 67. Um, I have a little table at the bot- very bottom of page 66 that lays this out. Um, the first scene is chapter 12, verse 44 through 13, 14. So that's going to deal with the temple, the anti-climax of the temple. And then we have 13 15 through 22 that is going to deal with uh the sabbath being neglected, the the walls and the sabbath being neglected. And then chapter or the the third scene is 23 through the end of the book in verse 31 where uh, we have intermarriage and the covenant being neglected. So we are going to have Temple, walls, and walls is is also connected with the Sabbath, but temple, walls, and then the intermarriage covenant issue. So all three of the major things that we saw being reformed, temple, walls, and covenant, are now going to be completely undone. We're going to have temple first, then walls, and then the covenant. So... Everything, the point of the end of this book is to show that despite their best efforts, despite all of the positives, despite everything that God has done, and this is not to say that God did not do these things. I don't think that's how we should, what we should take away from this. It's to say that despite what God has actually done, what they thought was happening— in god's cosmic grand plan was not happening there is there is this sense in which they misinterpreted their moment and i don't think they're to blame for that because they were reading the prophets how they probably were supposed to read the prophets in the psalms and the torah or at least giving it their best effort in the case of intermarriage where there seemed to be um some dissent and some disagreement uh, between people in that ezra story and ezra 9 we're told a couple of people said i don't think this is a good idea and then we read some of the contemporary prophets of the day um, and such as malachi and he just comes out and says divorce is not good you shouldn't do it and so there's um whether whether we, however we want to understand that, the point being is they were doing the best that they could in the moment. So I don't think we should we should blame them for it. But I think we do have to be honest to say what they exactly thought was happening was not exactly what was happening. And despite their best efforts, despite their best intentions, uh, they ultimately fail. And so th- we're just gonna, we're, as we move through each scene, we're gonna go through each scene here in, in a little bit of detail. Um, we, uh, we just have to know up front what they're trying to do. That the author is trying to take each of the three previous sections and completely undo and unravel all of them in just very blatant and obvious ways. And if you just sit and read, If you just remember everything that we've said, and then just go and sit and read this final section, you'll see it plain as day. It's very obvious. The structure of it is very obvious. The characters are very obvious. The message of it is very obvious. It's very obvious what is being communicated here. We almost just never get to the end of the story, or because we've been taught to read it in the... Uh, campaign-raising, fundraising kind of way. We haven't actually read the story for what it is uh, as the, the the second exodus and the end of exile and the prophetic hope and all of those things. We've, we haven't picked up on those clues, and so then the ending doesn't make any sense to us, because what does that have to—they've rebuilt the city and dedicated it. Everything was great. I don't quite get what this is, and we're going to build our building, and everything will be great, too. Like, this doesn't make any sense, and so we just kind of usually ignore it. Okay, um, so three scenes, each undermining uh, the previous three places of of restoration. So each of these major sections that I had mentioned earlier begins with the, the little notation on that day, or uh, yeah, one of them in those days, and then... Each section ends with a short prayer from Nehemiah, uh, which begins with the phrase, remember me. So again, if you just sit and read it all, uh, this final section in one sitting, you'll see it clear as day. You get the beginning of each section is is marked by on that day, and the end of each section is marked by a Nehemiah praying, and that prayer begins with the phrase, remember me. Okay, um, so the opening of of the the opening paragraph of scene one, um, which kind of acts as a, a hinge between the dedication ceremony and the final section, uh, details how the people dedicated themselves to taking care of the temple, uh, the Levites' services uh, according to David and the high priest, and everything that they were supposed to uh, to to do, and. This positive connection is immediately undone by the following story. So what we're told is that our good old friend and buddy, Tobiah, the Ammonite. Now you remember Tobiah. uh, He's one of the two main antagonists in the the book of Nehemiah. Tobiah, the Ammonite, uh, is found to have been given a storeroom in the temple for his own living quarters. So here's one of the two enemies of God. They literally cleared out a storeroom that was supposed to be meant probably for grain, um, for the offerings, and they've emptied it out, and he's living there in the temple, and he's an Ammonite, and he was one of the enemies of the entire building project. How that came to be um exactly is a, a little bit of of a mystery um but it's just it's completely crazy i mean, it just it's hard for us i think to understand what that would be to have an ammonite enemy living in the temple um so this sin is made even more glaring um <clears throat> This sin is made even more glaring by uh, the note in Nehemiah 13.1, where the people read uh, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So you have all of the history with Tobiah. Then you have the people in the scene here reading in the law where no Ammonite and um, no Ammonite and Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because those are the people uh, that hired Balaam to to curse them. Do you remember that story uh, in Numbers? And the people came out looking for bread and water, and Balaam they hired Balaam to, to curse the people, and so it was said from that day that no Ammonite and Moabite whatever, would would ever join god's god's people in the in the assembly now interestingly sidebar here but this relates because of the whole issue of of intermarriage that we've talked about and we'll actually come up uh, quickly again here in a bit uh ruth was a moabite and she's obviously the the great grandmother of david uh so how we work all of those things out is a little bit tough because here we have written in the law: no Moabite should ever enter into the assembly, except for Ruth, who has a whole book uh, written about her and who is, uh, is it the grandmother, great grandmother, I can't remember of King David, right? So, uh, but here it's clearly used in a, in a in a negative sense, right? So he's found living in the temple. So not only has Tobiah, it gets worse, not only has Tobiah moved into the storehouse, but the portions that were allotted to the priests and the Levites were not being given to them. And remember, this was part of the covenant. Do you remember earlier, they made, when they were with Ezra, they made a covenant with God, and there was three sections to that covenant. One of the sections of that covenant was was that they would provide for all of the services of the temple. And so that was an explicit part of their covenant. And now they've let this guy come in, they've cleared out one of those storehouses, and we find out that they are not fulfilling that part of the covenant. And the portions that were allotted for the priests and the Levites are not being given to them, so that they've had to actually go back and work in the field. So they're not even in the temple. So now we know that they're the sacrifices are not happening as they should be happening. The worship and the liturgy is not happening the way that it's supposed to be happening. None of it is, and we have an enemy of God living in one of the empty storehouses. So when Nehemiah uh, discovers this, he, he uh, I think, tries to excuse himself and says, well, I was I was gone for a little bit, and then when I came back, I discovered this. Like, this isn't my fault, I wasn't here. Uh, but when he comes back, he he removes Tobiah— and he restores the proper uh, service of, of the temple. But the the message is, is clear, um, that despite Nehemiah's best efforts, and Ezra's best efforts, and Zerubbabel's best efforts, all the rebuilding and the Reformation had not had the desired effect on the people, that they were just as unfaithful as previous generations. Right? That is the message. That... Yes, Nehemiah clears him out, but Nehemiah, we're going to see every, uh, each one of these scenes, he gets more angry and violent, and I would actually say sinful to the point where he's actually beating people up. Um, And so he's even, as a leader, he's spiraling out of control. Now, we love to use Nehemiah in those same building sermons as this great picture of, of a leader. But by the end, he's so angry and so frustrated with the people that he's literally, we'll see here in in a minute, pulling out their hair and trying to beat them, right? He's losing control uh, himself. So that's the undoing of the temple. So the temple services are neglected. The sacrifices are neglected. The priests and the Levites are neglected. uh, An Ammonite moves in. It's Tobiah who's one of the, the main enemies, that whole thing is neglected, just like previous generations. And still no record of, of God coming, right? God hasn't come into the temple, but Tobiah has, right? That's the 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 gravity of the situation. So scenes two and three, they follow that same kind of basic premise and structure. So scene two depicts the forsaking of, of the walls. And uh, I'm actually just going to read uh, a section... Of this here as well. So this starts in in verse uh, fourteen. Uh, it says, "When in those days I saw in Judah men treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing heaps of grains and loading them on donkeys and wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath." And they warned them that they should not be sold food. And so men of Tyre also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of wares and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. So here you have this um, scene where the people are again going back on one of their uh, covenant promises. So they they promised to keep the temple to to Ezra and the other thing that they told Ezra is that they would not buy and sell specifically with foreigners with people of the land on the sabbath on or by the walls like that was the covenant like we will not do we will not do that and the author goes out of his way to give all of this detail that it was on the Sabbath. It was with foreigners who lived in the city. They were both buying and selling. In In verse 19, we'd stopped reading, but in verse 19, if you keep going, we're told that it's uh, they would do this by the gates of the city and by the walls of the city. And so uh, they would they would do this uh, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 21. Nehemiah says, I warned them and I said to them, Why do you lodge here before the walls of the city? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come back on the Sabbath. So you have their buying and selling with foreigners goods on the Sabbath, at the gates, on the walls, all of the things that they promised that they would not do, violating not only the Sabbath, but here... Um, the, the, the undoing is both of the Sabbath and of the wall, is desecrating the wall. When when the author mentions that this is happening by the gates and by the walls and Nehemiah confronts them by the walls, why do you keep coming and do, doing this by the walls? And then remember the last time he just, he cleared out Tobiah's room and evicted him. Here, now he's threatening people. If you come back here again, I will lay hands. I will lay hands on you. I will beat you up. So he's continuing to get angry. So again, it's the undoing of both the Sabbath, and it's the undoing of the sanctity of the purity of the holiness of the walls. And then we get to verse twenty-three, and uh, we read the following: In those days, again, there's that opening. I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. So now we have the issue of intermarriage, which we saw you know, uh, two whole chapters in Ezra 9 and 10, and also got brought up a couple of times in the book of Nehemiah in, in smaller scenes. Um, of the people who separated from the people of the land, and, and so on and so forth. But in Ezra 9 and 10, this was a huge deal. And once again, in that same covenant uh, that they made with God, with with Ezra, uh, in Nehemiah 8 and 9, um, they... Uh, they said that they would not marry the people of the land. They would not join themselves to the people of the land because that's what their forefathers did, right? That's what got them into trouble in the first place. And here now, we don't know exactly how long it's passed. Not terribly long, for sure. I mean, Nehemiah did leave and has come back, but we don't know you know, exactly how long, but this isn't a hundred years later, you know, mm-hmm. Nehemiah is still still alive and still able to walk great distances, so this is, you know, not super long. Uh, they've gone back on that as well to the point, uh, and they've, they've committed themselves to the point that some of their children can't even speak the language of Judah, but they speak the language of Ashdod or of Ammon or of, or of Moab, and Nehemiah gets so angry. In verse 25, I love this. This is just one of those, I think, just hilarious verses. Uh, he says, I contended with them. So first he cleared out Tobiah's room. Then he threatened with the next people about the Sabbath and the walls. Now, in verse 25, he says, and I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of the in the name of God saying you will not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your own sons or for yourselves. So we go from clearing out a guy's room to threatening to now cursing, beating and pulling out hair. And again, it's the it's the anticlimax. So the entire book uh, has been building and building and building, as we've seen, and climaxed in the dedication of the wall, and only in the covenant that, that accompanied it, only to have everything that they've built, from temple to Torah to the wall, systematically undone in the closing section of the book. And then you get this ending. So I'm going to read uh, verse 30 and 31, the final two verses. So this is right after his prayer. This is how the book ends. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and i provided for the wood offering, at appointed times, and for the first fruits, Remember me, oh my God, for good. That's how the book ends. It just ends. There's no real resolution. There's no real... The anticlimaxes just happen. There's no... And then the next generation did what was right in the sight of God. Nehemiah, yeah, maybe kind of fixes it, but that's the point of this section is clearly, clearly not, hey, look at Nehemiah, he fixed it. It's to say the exact opposite, because even Nehemiah is coming undone. By the end of it, he's beating people and cursing them and pulling out their hair and forcing them to take an oath. You remember earlier, The emphasis was on the people coming together as one person with understanding. They were entering into the covenant, into the commitment, and into faithfulness with God of their own volition. And now we've gotten to the point where Nehemiah is cursing and beating and forcing people to take an oath. The whole point here is that the whole thing has completely been undone. And so the question then is this. What are we to make of this ending? How should we make sense of this ending? And I've been teasing this here for basically the entire series. But that really is the million-dollar question then. Okay, we've paid close attention to the structure and to the layout and to the themes and to the prophecies, into the repeated words, to the, the, the covenants that they've made. To the arc of the narrative, and now we've come to this strange ending where everything comes crashing down. And the question is why? What's the point? What's the message? It's my contention that we are meant to see this story as Israel's attempt. Well, again, not it's not their first attempt, but as Israel's attempt at living as God's people in covenant faithfulness in order to bring about God's promises for Israel and the whole world only to fail just as previous generations did. That's what we're meant to see. We're meant to see that this generation is just like all of the previous. And so we are left still waiting, still hoping, And still looking for that true Israel, that still faithful Israelite who keeps God's covenant, brings about the covenantal and prophetic promises of God related to Israel and the nations. And that is, obviously for us, meaning that we're still waiting for Jesus. I mean, that's where this story goes for us is that we're still waiting for Jesus. Is that He is ultimately, the good news is that Jesus is the fulfillment of every element of this story. He is the true Israelite who is faithful to God's covenant. He is the true covenant keeper. He is the true Sabbath who rests on The seventh day in the ground he is the true one man remember they came together as one man he's the second adam who keeps god's word who comes as the passover lamb who's presented in front of all of the people who stands up on the mount and reads god's word as a new moses who goes into the temple And is recognized on the eighth day, the day of new creation, on the eighth day as the salvation of God come among them. Who comes into the temple, or into the synagogue, I should say, and reads the prophet and says, Today this is fulfilled in your sight. Who is the Messiah, the the anointed one of God, who goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And overcomes the temptation of the evil one and comes out in the power of the Spirit. Who's, like I said, the Passover lamb, who then goes back into the garden, who tears the veil of that temple in two, who then in in Acts brings all of the nations there, and the gospel goes forth in every tribe. In every tongue. And we we looked here at the very end where the children couldn't even speak the language of Judah, but they spoke the language of the nations. There's coming a day when the gospel will go forth in all of the languages of all of the nations in Acts chapter 2 by the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus becomes the fulfillment of every element of this story. He's the one who brings about the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. In his own body, in his own blood, he is the true temple that is built not by the hands of men, but by the hands of God, who's raised up for all of the world to see. He is the true priest and the Levite who does the ministry of God, but not, as the book of Hebrews says, according to the order of Aaron, but according to the the order of Melchizedek. He is all of these things. Every element of this story finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And the point of this story, and we open this series talking about the Tanakh and talking about the giant flow, the meta-narrative flow of the scriptures and where this, this book fits in that narrative. And if you remember... We looked at how this this narrative in Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah, is the second to last book of of the Old Testament in in that ordering in the the ancient Jewish ordering of, of the Tanakh. Right? It goes the, the, the Tanakh ends with Daniel, Ezra Nehemiah, and then Chronicles. And so you have the, the prophet who's in exile in Babylon, looking forward to the day the Son of Man comes and all the nations are his. Then you have the people who go back and they begin to rebuild all of those things. And then you get Chronicles. And Chronicles is a much later telling of really the story of David, mainly, and it's done in a. I don't know how I want to say this. It's done more theologically than historically. Obviously, there's historical truth in it for sure, but it's written much, much later uh, than Samuel. The stories in Samuel was, but this is how the the Book of Chronicles ends, which is the end of the the Old Testament in, in the Jewish Bible. It actually ends in, in chapter 36. It ends with uh, people being taken away into Babylon. And uh, it ends, let's see, let's start in verse 20, uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20. And he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword It's talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now, where have we heard that before? That is a a direct hyperlink to the beginning of Ezra, that that was the word of the Lord fulfilled to Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, in all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that name also rings a bell from Ezra Nehemiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, there it is again, might be accomplished. So now he's, he's literally copying and pasting from Ezra Nehemiah. That the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it into writing, thus says, the, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, this last paragraph here, what I've just started reading, starting in verse 22, is literally a copy and paste from the beginning of the book of Ezra. It's literally a copy and paste from the book of Ezra. So so Ezra, Nehemiah was surely written first. And now the chronicler is coming along, and he is going to end his story about the temple and David and the messianic reign and the promise that was given to him. That's what Chronicles is largely about. The promise of David. It opens with this long, 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 long gene- genealogy, um, tracing all the way back, and the whole point here is to is to trace uh, God's people all the way through the word, all the way through. It's kind of doing that same continuity thing, but the chronicler is going to end his story, which ends the Old Testament in the Jewish Bible, <clears throat> and he does it by. Copying the opening lines of Ezra about the word of the Lord, of Jeremiah, being accomplished. And then this is how he he ends it. This is the last sentence of the Old Testament in the the Jewish ordering. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Period. Period. Now, we know that this is a copy and paste from Ezra 1. Let me read the copy, what he's quoting in Ezra 1, and see if you pick up on something, and then we'll we'll end with this. Whoever is among you, of all his people, this is Ezra 1 verse 3, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, And rebuild the house of the Lord our God, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. The chronicler literally stops the sentence in the mid-sentence. He just says, let him go up. But in Ezra, he says, let him go up to Jerusalem to rebuild the house. Now, why does he do that? Why does he stop in the middle of the sentence? And of all places, why does he stop before the mention of going up to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple? I think this is the point. He's making the same point that Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to make: that the story is not being done, written. It's not uh, done being written. The story is still going, the sentence is not complete and Ezra Nehemiah being written first he's copying that so he's recognizing that what happened in Ezra Nehemiah's day did not fulfill what they thought that it was going to fulfill that they were still looking for it that they were still waiting for it and that we know obviously is is Jesus so we'll end there that will be the end of our time in Ezra and Nehemiah. I hope that you have enjoyed this. I hope that this has been beneficial to you. Please feel free to um, use the resources I provided uh, below for free any way that you want. Take them, download them, pass them out, do whatever. I, you know, use them for yourself. I don't, don't really care. Um, but I hope that this has been a good exercise, and I hope that it helps you even just in small, incremental ways to continue to get better, and to grow as a Bible reader, to see connections, to see those hyperlinks, to ask the questions, to make the, you know, to, to reflect and to ponder, uh, all of those things that I think make us uh, good stewards and readers of God's Word. And So with that, we will end this series and season two, and I will see you sometime soon with some fresh episodes that I think you're really going to enjoy. But until then, we'll see you later. Bye-bye.